welcome. I'm Kieran Beer, Chief Analyst and Director of Editorial Content at ACAMS, the world's largest membership organization for anti-financial crime professionals. And in this, my eighth podcast, I speak with Selena Rael Yuyo, who is a member of the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organized Crime and a visiting senior research fellow at the National Defense University. We talk about emerging terrorist threats, how they will be financed, and also the nexus of organized crime and terrorist organizations. Here we go. Selena, it's a pleasure to have you. Terror finance scene, I mean, it's not front and center in the public eye right now, but terror finance is obviously still going on. Where are you seeing the new and next threat? What we've seen in the last 10, 15 years is that the use of financial intelligence has become an integral component of going after these groups. Better to understand who they are, how they're funded, and also we're treating the financiers just as seriously as the terrorists themselves. That's a game changer because it's very easy to replace suicide bombers or little soldiers, but the CFOs are the ones that are very difficult to replace. Perhaps the best example of how we use financial targeting was actually to defeat ISIS, ISIS, the actual Islamic State, by going after the two chief financial officers. One was located in Iraq and Mosul, and the other one in Raqqa in Syria. That really debilitated the Islamic State's ability to manage the financial aspects of their regime. What we also saw is that we were using many more targeting packages going after the infrastructure, for example, the oil refineries that helped to maintain the Islamic State. It's the first time in the case of the United States that we started to add financial targets to what we call military targeting. We had done it a little bit in Iraq, a little bit in Afghanistan, but it was so critical to bring the Islamic State to its knees. But now we're very worried of what we call the virtual caliphate and what comes next in order to replace the power back into the Islamic State, but we're very worried about these virtual networks. There are over 40,000 foreign fighters who went to join the ISIS ranks from all over the world. And if they haven't been killed or captured, they're somewhere. And this is what we're really worried about is where they are and are the ones that are actually plotting and attacking in places like Europe, in North Africa, or further afield. The foreign fighters seem to both be a threat themselves, and then with ISIS, there's been these individual attacks that have been inspired whether there's actually been real training or real connection with ISIS or not, and I suppose they remain an ongoing threat too. Right, so then the way the FBI categorizes them in the United States are either ISIS-inspired attacks, so these are people who didn't travel to the caliphate, but they do their actions in the name of ISIS, and they're usually radicalized online, but there's usually also someone in their community who's personally radicalizing them. So those are we call inspired, as opposed to the directed attacks, which are more like the Brussels airport, the big attack in France, where they are fighters who have gone back to their countries of origin because they had the passport that allows them to go throughout the European Union and actually realize those attacks. Those tend to be more lethal because the people are much more trained and much more deliberate as opposed to one or two in a cell who have what they call an opportunistic attack, which is what we've seen in the United States and Canada. This is an interesting thing that you've put in my head in using this term, the CFOs. And it seems to me that this gets to the whole FATF idea that there's professional money launders out there. Well, some of these would be people, I guess, that would be part of ISIS. Others would be people that are just facilitating who are, in fact, acting as professional money launders. Sometimes there's local funding, I guess, but sometimes there's also funding coming in from ISIS. Talk to me a little bit about those CFOs and who makes sure that these foreign fighters can get funds when they need it. The support networks that got them there, there's the same support networks we suspect that are sustaining them on their way out. And I just spent some time in Tunisia. Tunisia is the number one country per capita that produced ISIS 
Texas foreign fighters. It's also where the Arrow Spring was born. What they're trying to do is when they evaluate these young people that are coming back, they're trying to determine if they continue to be a threat to society or they're reconcilable. And unfortunately, we've seen the case in Tunisia, several of them were not reconcilable, including actually the widow of an ISIS fighter who detonated herself in a souk in a market. The casualties weren't that great, but it shows that these people are pretty fervent in terms of realizing jihad, regardless of where it is. What we're trying to figure out is who's helping them on their path back, whether it's to go to London or even to the United States or to go all around the world. And it's not just the financial piece, but the propaganda and the training. Because now with the internet, it doesn't even matter where you are, that you can access this really extremist ideology. And then more importantly, a lot of the how-tos, how to realize a terrorist attack. Are these semi-legitimate or totally illegal Hawala operators? Are they people that actually have connections to some kinds of actual financial institutions in some countries? Do we know who some of them are? So some of them tend to be what we call the facilitator, who helps you with your travel as well as your funding, and then also safe haven. So this is actually very important that we now consider the facilitators, whether they're a card-carrying member of Al-Qaeda or Hezbollah or ISIS, are just as guilty of complicity in a conspiracy to commit a terrorist act as the actual terrorist, which is very different than other jurisdictions in the world that don't raise the role of the facilitator to the same level as we do in the United States. We have this thing called the material support of terrorism, which has been the most useful legal clause that we've had since 9-11. Whether you're harboring, whether you're running money or helping false documents or physically helping people to travel to join ISIS, you're as equally guilty of material support for terrorism. What's been hard is now the role of virtual currencies and the virtual networks because ISIS is very sophisticated and they know that Western intelligence agencies are monitoring them on the open source. That's why you have them going deeper and deeper into the dark web in order to A, proselytize and promote their propaganda and then more importantly that actual logistical facilitation of funding and travel. So there really is a rise in cryptocurrency to fund terrorism. This involves using tumblers and using cold wallets that you deliver person to person, right. the mm-hmm. codes and everything for these right. things. And got all those cryptocurrency things, it's all transparent, they say, but there's ways you actually Correct. can mm-hmm. dip beneath the blockchain open ledger and then come back on later when you're ready. And that's the risk that we always see. Whether it's blockchain or cryptocurrency, there are tremendous positive ways to use them, but we're always looking at how could it be abused by either terror or criminal networks because of the ease of its mobility, its anonymity, and then more importantly, the immediacy of actually clearinghouse type of transactions if you need to get it in a different country. Hezbollah has been a big focus of yours, and I know you were just in Argentina. Argentina, We were there for um, uh, the 25th anniversary commemoration of the attack on the Jewish cultural center called AMIA, and the Argentines made a bold move. They designated Hezbollah as a terrorist group and actually charged the Hezbollah in Iran for responsibility of this terrorist attack. It was like their version of 9-11, where 85 Argentines were killed. So Hezbollah's a little bit different in terms of the way they organize themselves. We know they really are, A, on the one hand, a political party. They're also a transnational crime organization. And so ISIS isn't quite doing that with these facilitators yet. Let's talk about Hezbollah then. They obviously get an allowance from Iran. They're considered a proxy for Iran. And they also are the foreign fighters for Assad's regime to maintain Assad in power in Syria, which is not that well advertised. A political presence 
and leadership in Lebanon. But we're much more interested in the militant wing that's been responsible for all the terrorist attacks. People who don't understand and really study the history of terrorism don't realize that before 9-11, Hezbollah was responsible for the most number of American deaths and casualties due to terrorism since the 1980s. They continue to vow that the state of Israel shouldn't exist and its enemies include Israel's allies, which include Europeans and the United States. How they run their operations, we see facilitation networks here in Latin America. And there's one very big case of the Lebanese Canadian Bank, which has been very well documented, that showed how Lebanese Hezbollah facilitators use international legitimate commerce, piggybacked with narcotics trafficking, in order to launder money, but then actually finance terrorism. Even though Lebanese Canadian Bank doesn't exist anymore, there are different structures that are probably doing the same types of things. And it's come in the news again more recently, because of the presence of Iran and Hezbollah in Venezuela. And there actually is a move afoot to try to designate Venezuela as a state sponsor of terrorism because of the presence of Hezbollah and the presence of Colombian terrorist groups that are freely operating in Venezuela. And those are the FARC, who have just mm -hmm. signed a peace agreement, but even more so the ELN, the National Liberation Front, who are the ones that just committed an atrocious terrorist act. They actually set a car bomb at the police academy with the cadets who were just graduating that day in Bogota itself. That was a whole chain where there was drug money involved right, so that used, bought yeah, used mm -hmm. cars and then Hezbollah comes into it, how and everything. So the way it was set up was it's actually pretty brilliant in terms of using what we call open, legitimate transnational trade. So they were buying used cars in the United States, paying for that with obviously proceeds of crime. But they were also piggybacking inside the containers very high quality cocaine that was also piggybacked inside of the car shipments. So the containers would arrive in West Africa, then they would separate the cars, which would be legitimately sold as used cars in West Africa to avoid the tariffs. And then the cocaine would make it to the European, very lucrative markets. When it becomes terrorist financing is when the money is recycled, obviously money laundering to hide the origins of the proceeds, then there's an actual deposit and movement of that money into known terrorist accounts. So it began as a used car scheme, add narcotics trafficking to launder money, but then it becomes terrorist financing because of the final end of that money was to support the militant wing of Hezbollah. There were U.S. car dealers and others who knew that these cars were being bought, so they helped facilitate the finance of terror. Right. And then that's where the concept of trade-based money laundering comes in, right? The over and under invoicing. And Hezbollah and its support networks are notorious for that because they also operate in a lot of these free trade zones in the tri-border of South America and places like Cologne and Colombia and Panama and Isla Margarita. In the last year, there have been three very important cases in Paraguay that have included three individuals with ties to Hezbollah, but they were charged for narcotics trafficking and money laundering. And because they still have to get that terrorist financing law up to snuff in order to charge them, we know that they're involved in raising funds for Hezbollah, but they weren't charged for that. The three of them are now sitting very comfortably in Miami after having been extradited from Paraguay to the United States. Behind bars. Yes. Reassuring. Any other terrorist threats that you see out there that we haven't talked about? Well, there's something that's more of a domestic issue for the United States, as you know. There are extremists in the United States that may not have religious motivations. The default when you think about a terrorist, you always think about an Islamic extremist. It seems to be kind of the stigma when we talk about the term terrorism. And the bigger question is Are we talking about primarily neo-Nazi neo kind? Yes, and then even just, there are different types. There are environmental terrorists. There are these other groups, the anti-fascists, right? There are all these yeah. groups. And then the bigger question is, were we trying to use the same tools to understand how they're funding themselves? And then more point, how they're using social media. Right. What's very interesting is how we're really starting to scrape social media now as a law enforcement tool and also to be more predictive. 
right? Because the idea is you want to be left of boom as opposed to right of boom. And it's only after the fact that you learn. And we should say, you know, although this is increasingly becoming a term that uh, we use in the ACAMS world, (laughs) left of boom is a preventative action before, before, and right of boom is what you do to catch the bad guys afterwards and to recover. kind of. Or yes, we want to learn if something bad has happened how you can prevent that from happening again. And so the bigger question is, what type of information are they espousing and projecting? And then more importantly, how are they getting access to funding in order to get weapons and explosives devices in order to realize their terrorist campaigns? It's at a smaller, lower level, but it's just as important. What we've seen, though, in the last 15 years is really a much more deliberate sense of how can we use following the money and financial intelligence in more than just a complementary way to expand on both terrorist and criminal investigations. What are we learning about what banks can do to identify these transactions? We have some more sophisticated types of typologies that we can talk about. Throughout the industry, there's a huge push about artificial intelligence, the use of emerging technologies. How do we actually incorporate analytics? And that's very important. But I still go back to it's a human being. That's the best analyst you'll ever have. So it's important to invest in who is in your compliance team, but even more so, they have to stay current. And this is what biggest challenge, whether you're in the public sector or in the private sector, to keep up with all this new technology, especially, let's say, just in cryptocurrencies itself. And you have to also realize that everything that has beneficial attributes could obviously be used and abused. And that's, I think, where we have to really open the aperture to better understand how could this new technology be abused? Or let's say that you have a new client that comes on board that sounds larger than life. You have to figure out, wow, what's the revenue model? How do they do KYC for who they're going to be? There are a lot of these fintech organizations that are starting up that have very little that you can do due diligence on them. And you've got to figure out who their clients are. Because we've actually seen that criminal networks are very interested in the fintech and then more importantly, the crypto space because of the perceived anonymity and more importantly, the perceived efficiency that whole new realm and domain uh, bring them. We're seeing this a lot, and I think you know that I do a lot on um, products trafficking. Very disturbing in the United States, the opioid epidemic that we're seeing. An average of 193 Americans die per day from overdose. It's amazing how you can literally from your house basically order fentanyl and pay for it online. And unfortunately, we're not keeping up. Law enforcement is very slow to keep up with these things. We just don't have enough analysts. And more importantly, they're so innovative as a way. So whether they're sourcing the drug or delivering and marketing the drug, we need to get much more sophisticated. But at a certain point too, that money has to touch the system. And that's where we have to not be so naive that, oh, it's not happening with my institution. But more importantly, what's the profile of the person who's a new client? They have huge deposits all of a sudden. These are things that are kind of old school and algorithms can help you, but you still have to have really astute analysts who, when they see something, say something and really try to put the pieces together. So there's a lot of optimism you have around the kinds of machine learning and AI tools that are being incorporated, but you're also saying we really need to keep investing in training people. Because you really can't just, you can't replace humans still with technology. A human being does critical thinking that robotics maybe at some point in time will be able to do. But there's also this sixth sense that people who are in compliance have and you develop when something doesn't feel right and then you actually want to go and investigate more. Those are the best ways to detect red flags, also protect your institution. How do you stay optimistic? Does this just go in cycles and we've got to be prepared for the next one? Are you optimistic, pessimistic? I hate to get down to that, but I'm I'm realistic. realistic. I'm a New Yorker, so I'm a realist. The incoming class that I'm going to teach who are undergraduates, they were two years old on September 11th, 2001. 
That's an entire generation that only knows about terrorism as a movie. And this is why the continuous learning, raising awareness. We always talk about see something, say something, which is a very New York thing. And we now are applying that not just to if you see a backpack on the subway in New York to say something. If you see something in your own society, in your industry, you should actually raise the flag. And this is the same thing we talked about extremists and sadly these attacks across the United States of high school shootings. Every time after the boom, someone says, well, that student was a little bit reclusive. He was saying all these types of things, but it wasn't my place to say something. Those of us who work in national security, we're trying to raise awareness that every citizen should take personal security. If you see something, say something, because most of the time they're the ones who actually detect things. And the optimistic view, because I know you do a lot of things on human trafficking, which is and other scurves that I follow, a lot of the rescues of people who are victims of human trafficking was because of a local shopkeeper or a neighbor who, because they saw something on the news about what the signs of human trafficking were, actually made the call and were able to rescue the victims. So it's a matter of um, taking more responsibility, but also to teach the new generations that just because it happened in the past doesn't mean it can't happen again. Well, I guess that's where we can end with the motto, if you see something, say something. Financial institutions have been training themselves to do that, and maybe it's kind of incumbent upon everybody to be aware and do that. Selena, thank you so much for being here. It's really been a pleasure. Thanks for listening, everyone. I hope you enjoyed this podcast. If you don't want to miss any future podcasts, be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or Spotify because financial crime matters to me and to you. See you next time.